I think I'm fascinated by the fact that Judas Iscariot was able to be a part of the 12 disciples for so long and yet no one knew that he was going to betray Jesus besides Jesus. I mean, can you imagine having a close group of friends? We talked about cliques last week, talked about your posse, what defines a clique and whatever. But all of us have different groups that we roll with. And can you imagine one of your best friends betraying you? And not just betraying you like, oh, they started dating the kid that I liked and whatever, and you know, I'm not talking to him ever again. And I'm not talking like that. I'm, I'm talking about a man who really sold his best friend out for some money. Can you imagine? Just put yourself in that position. Finding out the person that you worship, the person that you follow, the person you believe is God. Regardless of whether you, you here today actually believe Jesus is God, at least put yourself in the place of these disciples. That these disciples really did believe that Jesus was God, but one of them betrayed Jesus for money, sold him to be killed, crucified. I mean, I can't, I can't believe that they could be so close yet not know there was a traitor amongst them. You know, you can't have betrayal without trust. And that's, in fact, what makes it so hard for all of us. It's not the fact that your enemies hate you. It's the fact that your best friends hate you that makes you grieve. It's one thing to have enemies hate you because you know your enemies are supposed to hate you. But when your best friend becomes your enemy, that's when it can be very, very heartbreaking. And I've had those times in my life. I'm sure that you've had those times in your life where a friend like completely was bottling things up and never told me and just one day it all came out. No one likes you. Everyone hates you. You know, and like I'd slept over at the kid's house every single week and I thought we were best friends. We used to talk about everything with each other and one day he just snapped. And I know what that's like to have someone that, that's really, really close to you, someone you consider a best friend, stab you in the back. How much more the Lord of all creation, Jesus Christ, when he is betrayed, when he's turned over, it could have been, I'm assuming it could have been by anyone else. Why did it have to be a friend? I don't know. I don't know if we, we can ever know the answer to that question. But what's even more scary is how is it possible that Judas could betray God? And how do we know that we're not Judas? How do you know that I'm not Judas? That I'm not just going to stab you guys in the back? How do you know that I'm not a fake? Because to the disciples, he seemed legit. He seemed like anyone else. Yeah, they're worshiping together. They're raising their hands. They're praying together. When Jesus taught every single teaching, when Jesus did every single miracle, Judas was right there beside him. I mean, I can't, I can't even fathom that. How is it possible Judas could see Jesus heal lepers? Jesus healed the lame, the sick. He resurrected Lazarus from the dead. And Judas, knowing all this, still stabbed him in the back. What could cause a person to do something like this? And how do you know if Judas, who is close to Jesus in proximity, yet was far from him by heart, if someone like that could be next to God and betray him, how do you know that one of us isn't going to betray him? 
How do you know that I'm not a fake? How do you know that your best friends aren't a fake? I think all of us at some point in time, when someone betrays you, you start to question everybody. Isn't that true? When one person stabs you in the back, now you're looking at all your friends. How do you know that that person's not saying that thing about you? How do you know that that person's not like talking about you behind your back? And it can be a very, very scary place to be. Or even more so, some of you might feel if everyone's going to stab you in the back, how, do we, how can we trust God? How do we know that God's not going to turn on us? When we sin and when we make God sad, when we grieve the Holy Spirit, how do we know that God himself won't turn his face away from us? That's a very scary question. And yet I would ask this. If you're worried about that, well, I would say this. If you're worried about that, that's a good sign. Because of all the other things that I know, I know that Judas knew he was Judas. Judas fully knew what he was doing. When he betrayed Jesus, it wasn't like, oh, I, I thought I was worshiping God. I thought I was a follower of God. Judas fully knew that he was uh, betraying God. He knew he was turning in Jesus Christ, one of his closest friends. And I think it's sad to think about what we are capable of. And that's a little bit of what we're going to go through as we go through this passage, the betrayal, arrest, and trial of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Look at verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, remember we talked about the Lord's Prayer, uh, the high priestly prayer last week. He went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, when he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. You see, Judas knew exactly where he could find Jesus. He knew that Jesus would be praying with his disciples. I think that's one thing to take note of. Do your friends, do your co-workers, do your parents know where to find you? Do they know that you're going to be at church on a Friday night? Do your co-workers know that you go to church on a Sunday morning? I mean, when I worked at a secular place back when I was 17, I remember, I mean, I, I didn't start working out of the church up until couple years ago but I remember being 17 and there's this reluctance to talk about it I can't work Friday nights why not well I uh, I have friends that I hang out with well that's not a good enough reason and I was too too much of a coward to talk about my convictions until one day I was just like there's no way I'm gonna miss Friday nights because I don't know if I'm gonna miss out on the Holy Spirit speaking to me what if that one night that I miss is the one message I needed to hear and I'll never know because I neglected it because I want to do something else and I said, I don't care if I lose my job, I will not work another Friday night. That was just my conviction. I don't know about you. But it took me a while to get to that place. There was a couple Friday nights that I was working. But do your friends, coworkers know where to find you? Do they, do they know that you're going to be praying? Do they know what you do at night? Whether you're just on the computer, idle, you're sending Snapchats all the time because you got nothing better to do, I'm so bored, whatever. Or do they know that you're being purposeful with every single minute of your life because your time has been loaned to you, lent to you? It's not your time, it's God's time, and God wants to use it for a purpose so that you can use it for his glory, and he, in return, gives you the joy and the fulfillment that you won't find anywhere else. I mean, you waste time doing all kinds of things that don't really matter in life, right? I do too. 
on the computer at the end of the day, I was like, I didn't do anything today. My day was wasted. And you could have done so many things. But any time you devote to the Lord is never time wasted because you're always learning a little bit more about Jesus and what he has for your life and his purposes. So Judas knew where to find Jesus. In verse 3, then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, that's about uh, 600 to 700 people, a lot of people, and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came there with lanterns, torches, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And, G and Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. These 600 to 700 people went to arrest Jesus. I, I was pictured, I don't know about you, I was pictured when Jesus is being arrested in that garden, there's like 10 people, 12 people. There's 600 to 700 people all coming to arrest this person. Why did they do that? Well, they figured the town's going to riot if they're going to take away the person they thought was their Messiah. So they got as many people as possible with weapons, with torches, coming to arrest Jesus. And what's interesting is Jesus asks, whom are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And then he says, ego emi. I am. That should strike a chord with you because that's exactly what God the Father's name is. I am that I am. And it's interesting to know that when he says, I am he, I am, the people fall backwards to the ground. You see, it doesn't matter how many people you think you have on your side if you're in the world. It doesn't matter what the world has and they can throw at you. If you have Jesus, you have God and you have God behind you. And no force in the entire universe can stand against you. I don't think these people really grasped. I can imagine the soldiers getting all cocky before they went to arrest Jesus. All of us for one man? This is, seems like a little overkill. It also reminds me of 2 Kings chapter 6, when Elisha is about to be captured by the Syrian army. You guys know the story. The Syrian king's like, what, what is up with this? Every time we try to take over Israel we send our troops but then somehow this prophet Elijah tells them like not to go there not to go this way and we, they always escape us so this guy's like this is not very convenient for us if we're trying to take over a city because anytime we try to take over for them this prophet's like don't go there because they're going to be there and they they escape somehow so like we know what we're going to do we're going to capture Elijah and we're going to kill him so they send thousands and thousands of people to surround the city to all capture this one prophet Elisha and so Elisha's with his bro, his like little, his servant, his, his young man, his bro. And he's just like, hey man, there's like a lot of people outside. So he goes outside and the young man's like, oh my gosh, we are going to die because there's thousands of soldiers waiting to kill us. But then remember what Elisha says. He says, there are more of us than there are of them. And then he says, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And immediately he saw chariots of fire angels surrounding these soldiers that had no clue how outnumbered they really were. Jesus said, don't you know how many legions of angels I could call down at this very second if I really wanted to? But it was needful for Jesus to, to be 
betrayed. It was needful for him to go to the cross so that he could die for the sins of the world. But we have to remember, no matter where we're at, we always have to remember to see as God sees the battle. Because when you have Jesus on your side, no one can oppose you. Whether it's gossipers in your school, whether it's people that ridicule, ridicule you. I know that some people told me before they were, they were out evangelizing here in this youth group. And some people just laughed at them when they shared Jesus. Just completely just made fun of them. You always got to remember to see things from God's perspective. I want you, next time you go evangelizing, I want you to picture angels around you guarding you. Remember, when we go out there, it's not like us versus them. Because if it was us versus them, everyone would lose, you know, <laughs> who's opposing God. We're there to seek and save that which was lost, the same mission that Jesus had. We're here to find those lost sheep that want to find home. So if some people make fun of you, who cares? That's not why we're here. I always wonder what would happen if I was captured by terrorists. I was captured by ISIS. You know, all of you guys know what's happening in Iraq. It's tragic. It's terrible. Beheading children. I mean, come on. This is ridiculous. And they're trying to terrorize us as Christians by beheading Christians and, and doing all these terrible things. I always wonder, how would I react if I was in that state? And I don't know. I don't know how I would react. I don't know how terrified I'd be. I, all I know is that God gives us a measure of faith and, and equips us when we think that we're weak so that we can be strong. So they drew back and they fell to the ground. Look at verse 8. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. I love that about Jesus. Even when he's being betrayed, he's thinking about his disciples. If you're looking for me, forget about my, my, forget about my disciples. Let them go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. That's probably one of the most encouraging verses in the entire Bible. If you are Jesus's, you will never be lost ever again. You ever feel lost in this world? If you're in the arms of Christ, you're in a very safe place and you never have to wander ever again in your life. You might be a stranger in a strange land, like in the Old Testament, wandering in the wilderness. But once you find the promised land, once you find the Sabbath rest, once you find Jesus then you are safe and you never have to go anywhere because you have found home. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? I think it's really interesting that Peter thought he was doing service to God. He thought he was protecting Jesus. Don't worry, God. I got you. As if God needed protecting. So he tries chopping off. The, either he was really good or he was really bad at swinging his sword. Because he either missed the dude's head or he was so accurate that he could just slice off this dude's ear. I don't really know. Also, some commentaries have looked at this and said, it's interesting to note that Malchus, his name is mentioned in this passage, which might mean that as John is writing this gospel, he writes Malchus because the people who are reading this know that Malchus is a believer. So perhaps Malchus came to know the Lord after his ear was chopped off. And we read in other gospel accounts that Jesus picked up his ear. And the last miracle he did before he went to the cross was healing his enemy's ear. Isn't that amazing? Because Jesus didn't come to just start a war. Even today, if you don't like Jesus, Jesus is not here to condemn you. He's here to save you. 
But it's up to you if you want to accept his free gift of salvation. You don't have to go through Jesus if you don't want to, but he's here to save you from the turmoil you yourself are going to cause through your sin, through your wrongdoing, and through your life. So Peter thinks that he's doing service to God, but he can't see the spiritual realm. Oh, how we need to see as God sees. To not just go beyond the word of God. Not to just anticipate, I think God's going here, so I'm going to just aim this way and start swinging. Before you do anything, we should always ask the question, is the Lord in this? And is this this what God wills for my life? That's always a safe place to be. We always make fun of the people that go to the supermarket and like, Lord, which ketchup do you want me to have? You know, what is the will of God for my life involving my sandwich today? Which peanut butter, which jelly? You know, some people get kind of crazy when they think of like they're always praying and stuff. But you know what? That is an innocent heart and that's a good heart to have. Even if it's kind of weird, you're always praying for like peanut butter and ketchup and whatever. I, I know none of you do that. It's a good place to be in where you're constantly relying on the Lord for every single thing in life. But don't forget, no matter what, never go beyond the word of God. Look at verse 12. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm going to chop off your head. No, he didn't do that. That'd be really messed up, actually. He said, I am not. To a little servant girl. Now the servants and officers who made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Here's where we're going with this. In this chapter, it's really interesting that the scene switches back and forth between Peter and Jesus. Why is that? Well, I think that's because it's showing the contrast between Peter on trial and Jesus on trial. Both of them are being tested. Jesus is being tested in front of the high priest, in front of the Jewish people and the religious leaders. And Peter is being tested when no one else sees what's going on. Here, it's important to remember and learn from Peter's mistakes. The first mistake he made is that he lacked integrity. This is a key element I think we as a church need to learn more than most things today is to be a person of integrity. But Peter lacked that. Because at first, we all can look at this and be critical and look back and be like, ah, silly Peter, and what a coward. How is it that he could crumble in front of a servant girl? But think about this. This is the same guy that just a couple verses before, he was trying to fight off 600 soldiers. Would you really call that person a coward? Like if today ISIS came out and was like, we're going to take over Coward Chapel Old Bridge, we're going to kill everybody. And then one of you guys ran out and started swinging his sword. Would you call that person a coward? I wouldn't. I'd be like, oh my gosh, that guy's a, a hero. So what, what was different? Why is it that a couple of verses ago, he was willing to kill all these people. 
and fight to the death. But here, when he's in front of this little servant girl, he denies Jesus. How is that even possible? He, in front of Jesus, he's the boldest disciple. But when Jesus isn't around, he became a coward. And you see, that was the key element. Who sees you when no one else is around? That's what integrity is. Integrity is being a consistent person of the Lord, even when no one else is watching. I think everyone can be a hero in front of a camera when everyone else is watching. And in fact, I feel like in many ways, YouTube has become the new kind of reality TV. I remember when reality TV, I mean, this is me starting to date myself now, but like, not like date like I'm dating, like that's awkward, but you know what I'm saying. Like, <laughs> reality TV only a couple years ago was a new thing and everyone watched it and uh, MTV and all these companies started thriving because it was so cheap to make and we're like, why is it so popular? It's because people like seeing the abstract, the awkward, yet very real situations in life. We all know the crazy mom. We all know the crazy whatever. And we look at these extreme examples and we say, I can't believe that is real. And now because everyone has a camera in front of them, now people are doing dumber and dumber things. On YouTube, now we have become our own reality TV show stars. All of you have access to it. And that is the promise, that you can get attention, that you can be popular, you can be known for something. Even if it's as dumb as dumping a bucket of water over your head. Really. I mean, that's what it's come down to. But who are you when no one else is looking? It's easy to be like videotaping yourself and say, I'm going to go help this grandma across the street. But will you do that when no one else is watching? It's easy to say, you know what? Alan commissioned me on this blessing blitz, so I'm going to do it. It's easy for me to tell you I'm going to memorize the book of Jude because all of you told me to do it. But who am I when you guys aren't around? You see, we were looking at Judas in the beginning and we're saying, how is it possible that Judas could betray Jesus? Yet, have you made that parallel comparison between Judas and Peter? Where Peter, in a similar way, was a coward when no one else was around. He was a different person when Jesus wasn't looking. I was on the subway the other day in New York City and I was sitting, waiting, and I saw this woman who was very clearly a homosexual and, you know, I have a real heart for that entire community. I just really do. I don't know why, but the Lord has given that to me. I had just a compassion for them. And she had a cross on. And so seeing her, I really wanted to evangelize to her, but for whatever reason, because I'm a coward, I don't know. There was something in you that just like your heart starts beating, I don't know, and you start questioning, well, it's weird, and what if she says something, and I don't know, she's not going to be open to it anyway, and I have the tract in my hand, like, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. I didn't do it up until the last, like, 30 seconds of the ride. I waited till her opportune time to go and talk to her, and I did, and she turned me down. But at least I listened to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But it got me thinking. Would I do that if I knew that no one else would know? If I wasn't around anyone else? If I wasn't around you guys? If I wasn't reporting this to you guys? If I wasn't using this in a sermon illustration? Because you are who you are when no one else is looking. That's your true identity. You are who you are when no one else is looking. I remember back in the day, 
when I was still in college back in the day. I gotta stop talking like that. I remember selling my books back. When you go to college, you buy books for like 500 bucks and then you get to sell them back for another like $100, $200 sometimes. And as I'm selling this book back, your books that have writing in them are worth severely less than books that are basically brand new. So I was selling a book back and the guy gave me like 60 bucks for a book when it had writing all over it, but he didn't really like look inside. And I'm walking away and as I'm walking away, I'm just like, well, you know, it's not really like his problem because he looked and he just didn't see it. And really, Brookdale's a big organization. They can probably spare the money and it's really not a problem. And as I keep walking to my car, I'm having this fight because I'm like, oh, I'm worthless. Oh, I'm, I'm a thief. I'm a loser. How can I look at anyone in the eyes anymore when I've stolen? <laughs> and I'm like, I literally got in my car. I'm like, no, I'm just going to drive home. I'm going to ignore this and it's going to be okay. I can, I can do this. I get in my car, start my car. I'm like, I can't do this. And I go back and I go back to the guy. I'm like, I'm sorry. I have sinned. I don't know why I did it. I'm just so sorry. He's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, I took advantage of you because I wrote in the book and and I just need to give you this money back. He's like, I don't care. Keep the money. I'm like, really? I can keep the money? It's great. And I like, I skipped. I skipped back to my car. And I was so happy. But the question is, are you going to do those kinds of things when no one else knows? When no one's going to give you the credit? It's one thing to say, I'm going to bless my parents and then brag about it to my friends. But are you going to bless your parents even if they think that you're still like a rascal? You don't do anything right, blah, blah, blah. Like, well, I did this one nice thing for you. Are you going to justify yourself in that way? Or are you going to say, as, as Jesus encourages his disciples in Luke chapter 17, to just say, you know what? We're unprofitable servants. We're worthless servants. We are just simply doing our duty. It's just I was created to do this, you know? Whatever. I mean, God has done so much more for me. How could I ever be ungrateful? We need more than ever, people to be consistent in who they are. Just as Jesus was, as we're going to see in a couple verses, Jesus will be interrogated and he's going to say, listen, I'm the same person when I'm with you and when I'm with my disciples. Nothing I've said to you is secret and nothing I've said to my disciples is secret. I'm the same person. And how, how we need people like that in the church today, not hypocrites. What's the use to go into your friends that backslidden and say, hey, come to youth group tonight if you're not willing to be the youth group to them? What's the use in inviting people to church if you're not going to be the church to them? If you're going to be doing the exact same things as they do. If you're going to walk the same way that they walk and talk the same way they talk. People want to see change in your life before you say that you should change their life. People want to see people that are real. Remember, more than anything, when no one else is looking, God sees you. Shouldn't that be our main motivation anyway? If we are seeking to please the Lord and not man, not care about what people think, if we're seeking to please God more than anything, shouldn't we care more when no one else is looking when Joseph is with Potiphar's wife and she's mad good looking and he's like, oh man, I could totally sin right now. But he doesn't think like that. Why? Because he says, how could I do this great sin against God? How could I take advantage of what God has clearly given me? 
But how many times do we sit alone in our rooms, do we just, we're by ourselves and we say, no one will know if I do this right now. Do you picture God in the room with you saying, but I see you? Because that's actually what happened to Peter. We find out in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. You see, Jesus saw him in the moment of Peter's betrayal, in the moment of his denial. So the first mistake he made was he lacked integrity. Second mistake is that he forsook Christ for convenience. He forsook Christ for convenience. We see that in verse 18. It says, when the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. In Jesus' darkest hour, as he's been betrayed and he's on trial, Peter is over there in the corner warming himself because he's cold and he's uncomfortable. It reminds me of David and Bathsheba, that in the time of the year when, when kings are supposed to go out to war, David stayed behind. And because of that, he got lazy and he gave in to temptation. It reminds me of when Uriah said to David later, later on in that chapter, when David said, said let me, let, let's, let's just cover this up, you know, talking to himself, let me just cover this up so no one will know the sin that I slept with his wife. He says, oh, Uriah, why don't you go home, you know, sleep with your wife if you want and just relax, you've been working hard. And Uriah says, Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie to my wife? As you live and your soul lives, I will not do this thing. As, as my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. That's basically what he says. How can I do this great and terrible thing when my friends are out there fighting? Now, obviously, David later on learned his lesson. When... His mighty men came up to David, and David says, how I wish I could have some water from the wells. And his mighty men are like, we'll go get it for you. And they start fighting and killing and, and went to go get this cup of water and comes up to David and said, here you go. We got the wells. We fought. We got it from the enemy camp, and here you go. And David took it out and poured it out on, on, on the floor. He said, how can I drink the sweat and blood of my men? That's a very different David. It reminds me of 2 Timothy chapter 2. When Paul writes to Timothy, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one in, engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. This isn't about just getting comfortable. This isn't about just like, oh, well, you know, I should relax. We are in a war zone. I mean, there is like, there are such terrible things happening out there in this life. The thing that really motivated me in ministry more than anything else, just so that you know, because I was in a place of complacency. I was in this moment where I was just like, oh, I don't know, it's hard struggling against sin and fighting temptations, oh, I don't know. I was definitely in that place. But I what got me out was the resolve when I saw how many people were suffering out there. And God gave me a vision of you guys and people in the world that have genuine problems and genuine sufferings. And I looked at my life, I'm like, man, what do I have to complain about? I have a loving family. Some people don't have a loving family. I have both parents. Some, uh, some families don't have both parents. I don't have cancer. Some families do have cancer. 
What in the world do I have to complain about? Other than, oh, I don't know, I'm tempted, and blah, blah, blah. I should just get over it because there's people out there that need Jesus Christ, and I have that message, and people need to hear it. Sometimes what we need to do is not warm ourselves by the enemy camp's fire. Ultimately, it's as John Corson said on this point, if you warm yourselves by the fires of this world, you're going to get burned. Because some of us are thinking, oh, you know, it's not, it's not too bad. I mean, this really isn't sin. It's, it's not bad, so maybe it's okay to indulge in this thing. But recognize that you're seeking something in the world and you're drawing yourself away from Jesus. The last thing he did, the last mistake is that he denied Jesus. Obviously. And we could look at that and say, well, maybe, maybe he didn't really mean it. You know, it's just words. What does that really matter? It reminds me of the verse that says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when someone says something really, you ever like talk to your friends and you say something really, really mean? Oh, I didn't mean to say that. I'm sorry. No, you very clearly meant to say that. It just came out and you, you just regret it. But you wouldn't say something that you don't mean. Now, we always wonder, like, well, when we're in front of our friends and your friends are questioning us about our faith, like, have you ever had those times that you just failed to represent Christ? I've had those times, and I've regretted them majorly. Some of us might try to, like, let ourselves off the hook by saying, well, it's only words. Well, it doesn't really matter. But think about Peter. Peter obviously hurt from this. And in fact, church tradition tells us that everywhere Peter would preach after the day of Pentecost, people would crow. People would make fun of him because of the rooster that crowed, reminding him of his sin, reminding him of his guilt. And if you ask Peter today, Peter, do you regret your decision? I'm sure that he would say to you that he did. And in fact, Peter had to die a martyr for his faith. And he understood that. I'm not saying that everyone has to die a martyr, but I'm saying that it is not just enough to say, oh yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but never actually represent him. The Bible says people will come up to Jesus at the last day and say, Lord, Lord, I healed people and did all these things. He says, I don't even know who you are. It's not enough to just say, yeah, I believe, you know, I just, yeah, I'm good. I just don't like sharing my faith. I don't like being loud and obnoxious with my faith. Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. And that's not just one time like, oh, I deny Jesus. Oh, no, I don't. Like, I'm not saying that if you deny Jesus once, it's done. Because obviously Peter denied Jesus, and he's okay, and he's in heaven. But a life of denial will not get you closer to the Lord. It will only breed regret. Let's look at the contrast in verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood, stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well... Why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So they're conducting, just so you know, this is an illegal trial because they're just trying to get Jesus crucified. They're just trying to get him murdered. 
So they're holding this trial at night, which was against the Jewish law. And they were asking Jesus questions, which was also against the Jewish law. You're supposed to ask the witnesses the questions. So that's all Jesus was doing. He wasn't being smart. He'd be like, well, you know what I'm preaching. Just ask my friends. No, what Jesus was saying is this is an illegal trial. You're not supposed to ask me. I haven't declared anything in secret that I haven't declared openly. So why don't you ask my disciples as the legal trial is supposed to go? But they didn't do it, and they smacked him instead, and they struck him. Verse 25, now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. This is absolutely disgusting. And this is why. The, the religious leaders, thinking they are offering God service and doing the right thing by not entering Pilate's court because they thought they were going to be defiled, were instead defiling he himself who was the Passover lamb. So just to let you know what was happening, they have a feast called the Passover. Some of you that are Jewish, like myself, understand that. And um, during this Passover, you weren't allowed to go into the Gentiles' courts during this feast as you were fasting because it, there could be leaven in their, their court or in their house or whatever. So you're su supposed to stay away. So in order to honor their man-made law, well, not man-made law, in order to honor their law, they forsook the person who himself was the living word, Jesus, and turned him over. So there's absolute irony here. R.C. Sproul comments by saying this. These men were scrupulous to avoid any ritual defilement, even while they were carrying out the most vile act of human history. As they delivered the Lamb of God to the slaughter, they made sure their hands were ceremonially, ceremonially clean. I had a dream the other day. Um, I shared with some of you this already. It kind of freaked me out, actually. Saturday into Sunday, I had a dream that there was a pastor who was preaching a sermon. And as he was preaching, there was something blocking his eyes. And I knew this for whatever reason. I knew he was blind, and he had some black things covering his eyes. And he was looking at the Bible, preaching, and telling people things like as if nothing was happening. I was like, how is he preaching if he can't see what's right in front of him? And God woke me up both literally and metaphorically, at 4 a.m. and convicted my heart so bad that I couldn't fall asleep for another hour. And I was just praying, repenting, because I felt like the Lord was telling me, you could be in a place where you're teaching the word of God, where you're trying to do things for the Lord and yet not seeing what's right in front of you. We could be just like these Jewish people where, where we're trying to do the right things, quote unquote, but God isn't in them. Because we're not doing them unto the Lord and we're not seeing where the Lord is moving. We always have to ask ourselves before we go out and do outreach, before we go out. I mean, if you ever find the Christian life hard, it's because perhaps you aren't relying on the Lord. I mean, it's going to be difficult, yes. But we should not be going through this Christian life burdened because God himself promised to carry our sorrows, carry our griefs, and to bear our burdens. So if you have a burden, it's because you haven't cast that burden unto the Lord. 
Our lives should be so radically different than everyone else's life. It really should. If we live a life unto Christ, we should not be living a life unto ourselves. How do you know if you're living to yourself? Well, are you complaining? Are you arguing? Are you grumbling? Why do we complain? Are you grumble? It's because we say, Lord, I like what you've given me, but it's not enough. Really? Is that our heart? Is that where we're at? You know, I was repenting. I was praying like Monday, especially. I was like, Lord, I am sorry. I'm, I'm a spoiled brat. I have no right to complain about anything because everything I have is a gift. The fact that I can talk to any of you and minister to any of you and speak to your lives is a gift. I have no right to complain about anything. And it's the next day that I get a little bit more pressure, stress, whatever. And the Lord reminds me, it's like, are you going to be moved by this? How do you feel now? I'm like, well, <laughs> I said what I said the other day, so I got to follow up with it, I guess. I have to be a consistent person. And so now I'm in that place. I pray that you'd be in that place too, hopefully. You wouldn't see your trials as burdens. You see your trials as opportunities to grow closer to Jesus. I'm not saying it's not going to be hard or difficult. It will be hard or difficult, but you can enjoy them. You can, you can see at the end of the road, there is Christ. Look at verse 29. Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if you were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. And then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. In other words, the fact that they could be turned over to Rome, that Jesus could be turned over to Rome, was so that he could fulfill prophecy and die the death on a cross, which was not, by the way, a Jewish custom or tradition. It was a Roman thing. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? All of you, everyone look up here for a second. All of you have to come to that question yourself. Do you believe Jesus is king? It can't be your parents' question. Can be your friend's question? It has to be your question. Is Jesus the Lord of my life? Is he God? Is he real? Verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus, Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. I love that. I love that Jesus says that. Listen, if you're worried that you're a Peter, if you're worried that you're a Judas, Jesus says everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. If you're seeking after the truth, if you're seeking after Jesus, you will hear his voice. But G.K. Chesterton said this, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. Oftentimes we look at the battles and we're like, oh, there's no way I could do that. Of course you can't do that without God. But with God, all things are possible. The question is, do you want to know the truth and do you want to seek after God? 
Verse 38, the last verse we'll go over today. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Can we say that last phrase together? I find no fault in him at all. One more time. I find no fault in him at all. Let me just be real with you for a second. All this chapter, we've been following Jesus at a distance, like Peter. We've been watching Jesus on trial. We've been watching Peter on trial. And we've seen Peter fall short. Peter had some failures, had some mess-ups, was not the perfect disciple by any means. I mean, he did better than I have probably done. I mean, if I put myself in his shoes, I don't know what I would have done. Maybe I would have been a soldier. Maybe I would have been a religious leader because I'm like, I like to argue with everyone. Maybe I'm just like a complete hypocrite back in the day. But Jesus was tried and still found true. Even Pilate found no fault in him. Even in Jesus' darkest moments, he still thought of you and I. And he thought of the disciples. It reminds me that Jesus has borne our griefs and our sorrows, our shame. He didn't go to the cross because he was forced to, but because he wanted to so that he could obtain you and I. That is the message of the gospel. And just being very real with you, I've had some difficult seasons in my life. Had a lot of trials in my life. A lot of times I've questioned God. A lot of times I've doubted God. A lot of times I was like, God, are you real? If you're real, why is this happening? I've had those questions. Maybe you've had those questions. But at the end of the day, in all my frustration, in all my difficulty, I can still say I find no fault in him at all. What about you? Maybe you're living a life on the edge, saying, I don't know about this Christianity thing. I don't know. Have you tried Jesus? Because if you did, you would find him to be true. You could either be a Judas or you could be a Peter. I know Judas knew exactly what he was doing. Peter, unfortunately, did not know what he was capable of doing. He said, Lord, even if everyone else forsakes you, I will not forsake you. Look at him. Because he was not a, a man of integrity. He was not the same person in front of people and in front of Jesus. But you know what? Jesus prayed for him because he saw the true desire of his heart was to please God in the end, even if he did that imperfectly. So what about you? Have you found fault in God? Do you blame your suffering on God? Maybe some of you are angry with God. Maybe some of you are frustrated with God. Maybe some of you are just simply like, you just think this is a joke. Like, I don't know, I don't know if this is real. Well, I can guarantee you, as so many of us leaders have found in our lives, that you'll never regret a moment spent with Christ. Because every moment you spend in Christ is a moment of love, a moment of care, a moment of sacrifice, even though we don't deserve it. And the confidence I found is even though I have a lot of failures in my life, no matter how many times I fail, I'll never find fault in Christ. No matter how many times I mess up, going back to the very first point in our introduction, we all have friends that betray us. We all have friends that we, we just never thought they would betray us and, and, and backstab us. 
Jesus Christ will never do that to you. In Psalm 27, it says, when my, even if my mother and father forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. That is a promise of the Bible. And that's because Jesus is a consistent person. What he says in front of people, he says with his closest friends. Doesn't gossip about people. He doesn't make fun of people behind their backs. Why is that? Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he's been true in your past, he'll be true in your future. 